Amen. Indeed, Lord, it is because of your love and your grace and your infinite mercy that we have life. And Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, it's not the words of men, but it's the word of God that transforms lives. So Lord, I pray that for the sake of your people, you'd use this marred and imperfect vessel that you might be glorified. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is great to have you here. I'm glad to see that the women did come back after Sunday. I was afraid we might have lost them all. I didn't know what would happen. Nobody laughed? Come on. You know I'm kidding. Wives, submit to your own husbands. I thought maybe I'd lose half the church, but praise God you guys are here. You know I'm kidding. You know I love you guys. All right. Well, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, picking up in verse 8 on Sunday. So do read ahead. And hey, if, you know, come out Friday. It's just good to have some unhurried time where we can hang out together as a church family and just can, you know, really sit around and talk and, and just enjoy some fellowship. So if you can make it, even just for part of the time, we'd love to have you. Okay. Well, over the past several months, we've been looking at the life of Abraham. And as we continue to repeat, because we all forget and we need to hear it again and again, Abraham was you know, by, called by God and called by the Word of God, the Father of Faith. He's in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. But we all know, if you've been here, he didn't start out that way. He, he, his first move was an act of faith. He went out not knowing where he was going. But once he got there, he forgot where he was supposed to be and he left. If you remember, the famine came and down to Egypt he went. And so we saw that he was a man of faith, but he was a faithless man as well. And boy, he seemed to go back and forth. One minute you would think, boy, what a faithful, godly man, you know, circumcising the, the, all of the people or, you know, actually having that covenant before God or stepping out as God had told him to or going out and chasing down the, the captives of Sodom and bringing Lot and all of them back safely when they, when they were outnumbered. Boy, what great acts of faith. But in the middle of all that, you see acts of faithlessness. Faithlessness in going down to Egypt and telling his wife to lie and pretend to be his sister. And acts of faithlessness when he was, again, called by God and told by God he was about to have a son. But they became impatient and they had brought a woman back with them from Egypt and he took her as wife and they had another son. And so we've been seeing this kind of swinging back and forth between this man of great faith and this man of faithlessness, but we know in Hebrews chapter 11 that God calls him a man of faith, and he's in God's hall of faith, and it was accounted for him, for him as righteousness because he believed in the Lord. And I said that last week, I believe, was the key chapter that is the reason why we find him in the hall of faith. It's Genesis 22. Because Genesis 22, now we see that, that faith maturing. That faith has matured over time. All the trials he had been to, all the mistakes he had made, all the times he had disobeyed God and then come back to him were opportunities for him to grow. And when we got to chapter 22, he was going to be put to the ultimate test. And because of all the previous tests he had been through, we saw him pass in a way with great and flying colors. What happened in chapter 22? If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to get the tape, get the CDs. They're always free. One of the most awesome chapters in the entire Bible. And I say that about every chapter because I love them all. But the truth is, what a picture of Jesus Christ last week. Amen? When you look at Isaac and you see Isaac, the son, carrying the wood on his back, 
up Mount Moriah to its highest point, which would be Mount Calvary. And there as he carries the wood on his back, his father, the one bringing him in obedience to what the heavenly father had called him to do. And then when they get there, Isaac willingly, because as we talked about, he was a teenager or in his 20s or even early 30s. His dad was 120 or 130 years old. Isaac could have overpowered him at any moment. But Isaac showed great faith in laying down his life. Isaac willingly submitting to the will of the Father. What a picture of Jesus Christ. And through all of that, we saw just this absolute faith on the part of Abraham. Because the son of promise who he had waited for, 25 years after the first promise that he would have a son, maybe 75 years after he started trying to have children with his wife, the son was finally born, and now God is telling him to sacrifice his son. He gets all the way to the point, as we know last week, he's holding up the knife, he's ready to sacrifice his son. I cannot even imagine being in that position. And here he is, I mean, much easier to kill himself, much easier to lay down his own life, but to take his son's life and to have his son laying there freely and looking up at his father and him having the knife and ready to do it and God stopping him. And when he stopped him, I love that one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, God provided himself a sacrifice. When Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? His dad said, God provided not for himself. He provided himself a sacrifice. They look over and they saw the ram caught in the thicket and they sacrificed the ram instead. And so it would appear that he's been through the toughest test he could ever possibly go through. There couldn't be a test more difficult than this one. But can I say this? Sometimes we look at chapters like chapter 22, and if we're just bouncing around the Bible, we might skip over chapter 23. And when people bounce around the Bible and look at the main theme, sometimes we're going to see a lot of deliverance. God, he was faithful. When we're obedient, God is glorified and we get blessed. He was being obedient and God rescued him at the very last second. And then we expect if we walk by faith, we're always going to get rescued. If we walk by faith, we'll never have to endure the hardship. Well, guess what? Chapter 23 tonight, we're going to see that there was yet, in, in what may have been, no doubt in, in a lot of ways, a greater trial than chapter 22. Because this time, God doesn't deliver him from it. God allows him to go through it. And it's something that all of us in this room deal with. And some of you have been dealing with it just in the past few weeks. And we're all going to deal with it. If, the, if God tarries, if the rapture doesn't happen, you know, right away, and God can tarry and he waits, as he waits, more and more of us will go through this. So if you're a note taker for Genesis 23, I titled the message, How a Man of Faith Deals with Death. How a Man of Faith Deals with Death. And we're going to see that where before he did not have to kill his son, we're now going to see that he deals with death in a very real way. So four points if you're a note taker. Number one, a man of faith deals with death. Here's how. He grieves. He grieves. I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but some people think if you're really spiritual and they're really on fire and you really have an eternal focus, you shouldn't be grieving. Well, that's just not, that's not accurate. It's not biblical. We're going to find that out tonight. But we do grieve, but we do not grieve as those without hope. There's a different grief in the heart of a believer as in the heart of an unbeliever. Guys, for us, it's moving day. Amen? And we'll talk about that as we move on. Number two, he moves forward with an eternal perspective. He moves forward. So he deals with death. He deals with the grief of death, but then he doesn't just shut down. 
That's not a biblical response. That's not a godly response. I've talked to some Christians who've had someone in their family die 15 years, die 15 years ago, and they're still struggling with it. Guys, that is not the Holy Spirit. That's something the enemy is trying to do to keep you from being effective for the kingdom of God. I guarantee you the person you're grieving for is not grieving. Amen? The people that are in heaven are not even thinking about you right now. People think, well, my father's looking down. No, he's not. He's hanging out with Almighty God. Amen? He'll notice when you show up and he'll be glad to see you. But right now, eyes on Jesus. Amen? That's much better place to focus. Number three, how a man of faith deals with death. He continues to trust in the promises of God. He doesn't grow bitter and angry and, and mad at God that this happened. He continues to trust in the promises of God. And then finally, he continues to have a godly testimony. You know, his testimony isn't blown because he's gone through a difficult time. Guys, without a test, it is not a testimony. It's only through tests that our testimony can shine brightest to a lost and a dying world. So, how, do, how a man of faith deals with death. Number one, first point, he grieves. Genesis 23, beginning in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. Now, what's interesting is this is the only woman in the Bible whose age is mentioned at her death. And I don't know if it's just because women don't like their age mentioned or what, but, but she's the only woman in the Bible whose age is mentioned at her death. Why is that? Well, I believe it's significant because of how mightily God had used Sarah. But it's also a reminder to us that she was 90 when she had her first child, her only child, when she had Isaac, and that he was the son of promise, and that God had done great and awesome things through Sarah. So God, again, I believe is denoting the importance of her in his plan and reminding us how old she was when she finally had a child. It says, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, Nowhere in the Bible are we told to look up to any woman as a godly example. Not Mary, not Queen Esther, not Martha, not... Now, again, there are godly attributes we see in them that certainly godly women can look at and say, wow, that's a godly attribute that I could follow after. But what is interesting to me, there are two places in the Bible where it says that godly women are to look at Sarah as an example. So she lived a life, a godly life, a set-apart life, and her life was a godly example. It says in Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2, it says, Look to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. The example, the godly example you are to follow in, in Isaiah 51, is look at Abraham and look at Sarah. And then a verse we quoted last Sunday. Just last Sunday. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God and also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Hey, Look, it says, if you are, she's the example of submission. She's the example of a godly woman. She's the example for other godly women to follow. Now, guys, we don't worship any person other than Jesus Christ. We don't pray to them. We don't esteem them. We don't have pictures of them. We don't put up idols of them. Amen? 
And you know what? Jesus Christ alone. But it's here it tells us that, yes, there is an example of submission. And so as Abraham was considered the father of all who believe, so Sarah was the mother of all who believe. And an example to women of submission, uh, of faith, and the fear of God. Now, one thing I love about this is she's used as an example, but we know she's not perfect. Aren't you glad the word of God does not hide the frailties of its heroes? Who came up with the whole Hagar thing? Whose idea was that? Sarah! It's the woman thou gavest me, Abraham could have said, right? And here we are looking at all the battles in the Middle East today, and guess what? It's all fruit of Sarah's great idea to not wait for God and to come up with her own plan and strive in the flesh. But here's the good news. God says she's an example to follow in his word. Because it's not that she's perfect, but that she followed the perfect one. It's not that she never made a mistake, but that she was a godly woman in her submission and in her heart to follow God. She'd been used mildly by God. Her test, what was her test? 90 years of barrenness. That's a test. Especially in the time when, at, when if you didn't have children, it was considered by people, not, not by God, but by men to be a curse. And they would look down upon you and the other women would mock you. And here she is married and can't give her husband a child. And boy, the mocking that came when, they, when the, the, the promise finally came, it was 25 more years later. But that test became an awesome testimony because 90 years of barrenness brought a miracle, a, a son of a, a promise, Isaac. Again, all of that was part of God's plan to use her in a mighty and a powerful way through whom the Messiah indeed would come. So she lived 127 years. This is the life of Sarah. And then it says in verse 2, so Sarah died. Now, Someone asked this question on the pastor server just this week. And it asked the question, can we shorten our days that God ordained for us through disobedience? Here's the point. God knew you were going to disobey, so you already knew how many days you were going to have, so you can't. Amen? You know, God's not being surprised by anything. Amen? And God knew before the foundation of the world the very moment that Sarah was going to die. And guess what? We are indestructible until God is through with us. It's not until our ministry is complete, until we've done that. Now, you can miss out on God's highest. You can have a saved soul and a wasted life in a sense. But you know what? We're not going anywhere until God says so. And Sarah had fulfilled what God had for her life. And now Sarah has gone to be with the Lord. This woman of faith used mightily by God. Her time had come. And again, death apart from the rapture is inevitable for everyone in this room. And I want to take a moment to talk about death for a second. You know, in our culture, we kind of try to hide it. Like people think if you hide death, maybe it won't happen to you. If somebody dies in a hospital, they put them in a car and quickly drive them to another building and Everything happens there, and then you go to the memorial service, and then they shut it, and then bring it out to the thing, and put it, and they usually have, you know, the gravesite is somewhere out of the way that you have to try to get to to find it. It's not a place you drive by all the time that constantly reminds you of death. But what's interesting is, it's not, all, it's not that way in most cultures, but in our culture, a lot of times, there's a, try to avoid the fact that we're going to die. Try to avoid the truth of it. Guys, ignoring it is not going to make it go away. 
Guys, we need to live every day in light of the fact that we're going to stand before Almighty God very, very soon and be accountable. Do you know him or don't you? Is he going to say, enter in my good and faithful servant or depart from me for I know you not? There's no second chances. This is it. And guys, we should not fear death because we know where we're headed. Christians die well. Amen? Sarah died, but Sarah didn't really die. Her body stopped working. She left the temporary tent, and as we know, prior to the cross of Calvary, she went to a place that was later identified in Scripture as Abraham's bosom. And there she was in the presence of the Lord until the crucifixion. But she left her, her body on earth, and she, spent it, she immediately was in the presence of Almighty God. So Sarah died, but for Sarah, it's only gotten better. The one who's going to have to deal with it now is Abraham. And for Abraham, it's very hard. For Abraham, it's very, very difficult. So Sarah dies. She passes into the presence of Almighty God. You know, for us, our life is but a vapor. We have no promise of tomorrow. We're all going to face death. It shouldn't be hidden from or ignored. And we need to realize, and I want to encourage you with this, we, we do grieve at memorial services, but they ought to be celebrations if the person knows Christ. It's coronation day. Amen? Now, we, do we grieve? Absolutely. Is grieving what we should be doing? Yes. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But can I tell you something? If I die before you, please do not make it a time of, you know, grieving without hope. It ought to be a time, because I won't be grieving, so why should you? Amen? In the presence of Almighty God. It's the, you know, when we go to graduations, we, we you know, we kind of cry because our kids are growing up, but we're not weeping uncontrollably. We're excited. Why? Because they've accomplished something. Guys, it's graduation day when we die. We're going into the presence of Almighty God. Sarah is in God's presence. But Abraham is the one who's been left behind. And it says here, so Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron. Kirjath Arba if you remember from earlier, and we'll see it later in the other text, it means city of the four giants. It's where the Anakim dwelt. But it's also the first city they had gone to. Do you remember when they came out of Egypt and Abraham was realizing, well, you know, I kind of did things my way. I'm not going to do that this time. Lot's servants and his servants began to fight because they had so much stuff. And he tells Lot, you pick which way you want to go. We'll go the opposite way. And Lot looked down and he saw the greenness of the Jordan Valley headed down towards Sodom. And so he picked that area. And where did Abraham and Sarah and their servants and their family end up? In this very place, Kirjath Arba, also known as Hebron. Now, what I love about the name Hebron, it means fellowship. And what I love about that is Sarah died in fellowship. She was in fellowship with Almighty God when she died. And she was in greater fellowship after she died. Amen? She was in fellowship with her husband. You know, I pray that when we die, we would be in fellowship. It would just free us up to much greater fellowship with Almighty God. Take us away from, you know, us being separated because we're in these bodies. We're now we're in His presence forevermore. And Sarah died in fellowship, in fellowship with the Lord, in fellowship with her husband. 
The Bible says in Matthew 10, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now notice what happens here. Here's to me the turning part of the whole story. So she dies in the land of Canaan. That's the land of promise. And then it says, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham came. You know what that means? Abraham was away when she died. You know, he could have been out tending to all the flocks. He may have been, he may have been up at Mount Moriah worshiping. I, we don't know. But he was not there, which tells me that she probably died suddenly. Because if she had had a, a fatal illness that had lasted over time, I have an idea that her husband of a hundred plus years would have been by her side. But imagine Abraham now. I don't know where he was tending the flock or you know, off with his servants or doing whatever he's doing, doing business. I don't know what he was doing. But imagine as the word comes to Abraham. Abraham is out doing whatever he's doing. No doubt a servant was sent out to find him. He runs and he finds Abraham. He interrupts him and stops him and says, Abraham, you need to come home. Well, I'm busy right now. Well, what happened? You need to come home. Your wife has died. Now, Abraham walking home in anticipation of seeing his wife, Sarah. Sarah's name means princess. And she was indeed his princess. He wasn't always a perfect husband, was he? Was he? Tell him you're my sister. That's not good. Don't do that. Let other men bring her into their harem. Now, God never let it go far enough to where they actually were intimate with her, but, you know, they were heading that direction, and he allowed it. But you know what? Can you imagine being married to somebody for a hundred years? She's 127. In those days, you got married maybe 15. They've been married 112 years. I don't know what in the world anniversary that is, but, you know, if you got gold and platinum, I don't know what, you know, plutonium, what is it? I don't know. I mean, so they've been married 112 years. We've been hanging out since we were 15. Now she's 127. Can you imagine all they've been through together? All the difficulties, all the trials, but all the blessings. Going through the barrenness, waiting upon the Lord, seeing, making mistakes together, but seeing God deliver them together. When he was blowing it the most, his wife was still standing by his side. Even when he told her to do things that were stupid, she still stood by him. Don't, don't you women say amen to that, okay? But you know what I'm saying? But you know what? You know what God, you know, and here's the truth. You know what a husband needs? A woman who will follow him and encourage him. Not one who will question everything he does. Because if he starts wa- getting out of the car and walking through the mud in the wrong direction and you mock him every step, he will walk until that mud is over his head. He will just keep going. Oh, you idiot, I told you it's the wrong way. You know, mud keeps getting deeper. He just, oh, I'm, I'm going to go, I don't care. You know why? Because that's how stubborn men are. But if the wife is behind him and says, oh, well, this is the way you think we should go? Okay, babe, I'm with you. He'll get ankle deep and go, you know, it's kind of muddy. I think we should go back. You know why? Because you're supporting him. Sarah was that kind of wife. She was Abraham's princess. She was his support. And I can imagine as he walked up to that tent and pulled open that flap and looked and saw his wife laying there. Her now lifeless body, what must have happened in the heart of Abraham. And we see what happened because it says here that he came to mourn for Sarah 
and to weep for her. Now, this is the first time in the Bible you see mourning and weeping. And I told you before, the first time you see something in Scripture, it's significant. And so he's mourning. The word mourn there means to wail, to lament, or to beat your breast. Literally, pounding your chest in just grief. He is mourning for his wife. His heart is broken. Now, it also says that he wept. So guys, grieving is godly. When people try to say, well, if you're really on fire for God, you'll just have an eternal perspective and you won't grieve. Really, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Amen? Does he know? Is he perfect, holy God? And yet he wept. Guys, mourning is a godly thing. We weep. We grieve because we love each other in a supernatural way. Again, why do we grieve? Because we're going to miss them. And you know what? When there are people that you love that have had a huge impact on your life, it's even harder because you're going to miss them even more. You're going to miss the phone call. You're going to miss seeing them. You're going to miss having dinner with them. All those things are so big. And of course we grieve because we miss that. And you know what? It is a godly thing. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when we mourn, the Lord comforts us. The Holy Spirit, the Paracletos, is called the comforter, right? And so when we mourn, He comforts. Guys, we don't go through mourning alone. The Lord is with us, and He is faithful, and He comes alongside us. And he, The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So not only does the Lord weep with you, but your Christian family weeps with you. And we hold up each other's hands. We should be a source of encouragement. And don't go off and try to deal with your grief all by yourself. That's what the enemy wants you to do. Go crawl in a hole somewhere and just, you know, just be angry at God and don't allow it. You know what? We need to be comforted. We need to be loved on. We need to be ministered to. That's a biblical concept. That's the word of God. Isaiah 56 says, You number my wonderings and you put my tears into the bottle. Are they not in your book? God bottles up your tears. Have you ever thought about that? He knows every tear you cry. Let me ask you a question. If you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, and you see a child whom you love hurting and weeping, doesn't it hurt you too? Don't you wish you could take... Guess what? We're imperfect parents and aunts and uncles. And he's perfect, holy God. And when we weep, he weeps with us, guys. He loves us. He's a faithful God. You know what's interesting? And I've heard this two different places, so I I just want to qualify the statement to say I I have not done it myself, so I have no proof. But I've heard it two different places from two people I respect. And they said if you look at a tear under a microscope, that the saline crystals of, of all our tears are in the shape of a cross. If you look at a tear under a microscope, it's always in the shape of a cross. I've heard this from two different people who I respect greatly. And I haven't, you know, I haven't taken a microscope out and cried on it. I haven't done that. I don't. But the point I'm making, that would not surprise me at all that when we weep, even that is covered by the cross. It's his love, his grace, his mercy, as he loves us so much. Now, there is a difference between the tears of those in fellowship in Hebron and the tears of those who don't know God. 
As a pastor, I've done memorial services for believers. That's probably 95% of the time. And on a rare occasion for someone who doesn't know God, can I tell you it's night and day? It's night and day. Because for the Christian, we'll miss them, but they're in heaven. This is not goodbye. It's see you soon in a much better place. Can't wait. Going to be awesome. For someone who doesn't know God, there is no hope. It's all lost. It's final. It's done. I've never, you know, it's amazing when that casket drops into the ground to see the grieving and people just fall on their, because for them, that was the last time. It's over. Guys, it's not that way for believers. There's a difference in the way we grieve. A man of faith in dealing with death, he grieves, but he does not grieve as those without hope. He grieves in the hope of the coming Messiah. He grieves in the fact and the truth that we will see them yet again. The tears are of temporary separation, not tears of despair. They're tears of memories and rejoicing, not inconsolable weeping. A godly man grieves, but does not grieve as those without hope. Again, Sarah is out of her temporary tent, but she's now in the presence of Almighty God. But her husband of a hundred plus years is no doubt grieving to the depths of his soul as he mourns and weeps over the loss of his princess. That's what Sarah means, his precious wife. You know what? If the Lord tarries, those of us in this room are going to experience the loss of spouses. We're going to experience the loss of parents. We're going to experience the loss, some of us, Lord forbid, but some of us may be children and siblings. But guys, we need to be prepared for the fact that 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 is an inevitability if God doesn't rapture the church. But it's not that we should grieve without hope. God is faithful. He's numbered our days, and he loves us far more than we will ever know. So how's a man of faith deals with death? Number one, he grieves, but not as those that are help. Number two, he moves forward. Look what happens. So Abraham's grieving. He's weeping over his wife. He's at a, Now, it doesn't say how long, but we know it's on the same day. So he is on his face. He's weeping. He's mourning. But then it says in verse 3, Then Abraham stood up. From before his dead, and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, He stood up. He had been weeping over Sarah. He'd been in the midst of, of grieving. But in the midst of all of that, he stood up because he knew he needed to be about burying his wife. He knew that there was something else he needed to do, that something else God had put before him. Now, in those days, they buried the person the same day that they died. And so this needed to happen right away. And so he had some time of grieving, but he did not grieve for months or years. And again, I'm not saying that we won't look back fondly on a family member who passed away some years ago, maybe see a picture and bring a tear to our eye, of course. But what I'm saying is where we're grieving to the point that our life is rendered paralyzed. And sadly, there are people like that. People that I'm, you know, I just can't get over the loss of my family member two and a half years ago, and I haven't worked, and I haven't. Guys, our God's greater than that. 
God will help us move past that. And so he gets up because as he mourns, there's one who comforts him. And he's grieving, but he's not paralyzed. And he gets up and he begins to move forward. The grief was not going to overtake his life because the Lord was with him. And it says he stood up from before his dead and he spoke to the sons of Heth. Now the sons of Heth are also known as the Hittites. You're going to see the Hittites throughout the Old Testament. Esau ends up marrying two Hittite women. Uh, they're part of the land of Canaan when Joshua later comes back and runs over the top of the inhabitants of Canaan. The Hittites are in that group. You know, that's interesting. There was a Hittite among, there were some Hittites among David's men because there was a man who was a Hittite named Uriah. Uriah the Hittite, right? Who had a wife named Bathsheba. So the Hittites would be a mighty nation some years forward, but at this point they're dwelling in the land of promise. And David goes before them seeking, as we're about to see, a place to bury his wife. Verse 4. And he says, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Now, Abraham didn't feel this way because he was originally from Ur of Chaldeans. That's not why. He says, I am a foreigner among you because this is not my home. You know what I find to be true? Heaven has always been precious, but it becomes more precious every time somebody I love goes ahead of me. Amen? Somebody you love goes to heaven, and guess what? It got, you know, it's precious enough just with our Savior there. But when somebody we love dies and goes to heaven, it becomes a little bit more precious. And here he is, just having looked down at his princess, his wife of a hundred plus years knowing that she's gone to be with the Lord, and here's the first words out of his mouth, I'm a foreigner and a stranger here. You know what, this isn't my home. I'm going to be in heaven one day. You know what, I'm a foreigner here. And as he talks to these men, you know, my my relationship with you is not as grounded as my relationship with with my real home, which is in heaven. And guys, that ought to be impactful in how we live and how we walk and what we do, you know, because... Heaven indeed is our home. We're just passing through this place. It says in Hebrews, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He said, you know what? I'm just passing through here. This life is temporary. The trials of this life are passing away. What really matters is where I spend eternity. And you know what? I've just looked in the eye, the, you know, the face of my, my princess, my wife. She's gone to be with the Lord. And you know what? Heaven's even more precious to me now. Praise God for the promise in his word that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know what? I've been to foreign countries and when I go there, I don't feel at home. Especially if it's a country where I can't read the signs. Not only do I not feel at home, I feel like an idiot. You don't have to ask people, so where's the, like, right there? Okay, you know, I mean, you just feel, you don't feel very smart. And you're walking around, and you just feel uneasy, and, you know, you come home, and you finally think, okay, you know, I feel more, you know, at home here. But guys, we look around, and we can't read the signs in this place. The things that people are passionate about, the things that they move toward, just don't make any sense to us. Why? Because we have a relationship with the Lord. We saw in First Peter, last 
uh, two weeks ago. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. What he's saying is, look, you live in a way that honors God. And then he says later in that verse, in anticipation of his day of visitation, you know, the Lord is coming. And we need to live every day in anticipation that he will be here to take us home. He says, I'm a foreigner and I'm a visitor among you. And then he says, give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He says, now, what's interesting is the land of promise in God's eyes all belongs to Abraham, but at this point, he doesn't own any of it. He hasn't bought one stick of ground, none of it. He doesn't own it. He just lives there. And now, the first time he is purchasing any land, it's to bury his wife. And so now he comes, he needs a place to bury her, and give me some property. The word give there really says, it's better interpreted, sell. So he's wealthy, he doesn't own property, God had promised to give give it to him, he wasn't going to strive to get it. And again, he wanted a place for his precious wife's body. Now again, he wasn't burying Sarah, he's burying her tent, amen? Let me say this again, just side point. Some people say to me, well, Pastor Dave... You know, what kind of burials do you think are okay? You know what, guys? When you get put into, when you're not there. And when they put your shell into the ground, in a matter of time, it's going to be dust. Amen? So some people say, well, I don't believe in cremation. That's fine. You don't have to. But it's just speeding up the process. (laughs) Amen? You know, no. But here's the point, guys. You do what you feel most comfortable with. But guys... It's don't don't worry. And, and I, I want to say this. This is kind of a pet peeve of your pastor. I've been there when when I've seen people who run funeral homes really playing on people's heartstrings. And boy, people are very vulnerable at that moment. I remember someone telling my grandmother, boy, and I got angry, telling my grandmother that you want to put him away nice. And, you know, you need to airproof one of those bugs will be crawling on his body. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Come here. You don't talk to her anymore. That's not, you know, because what happens is, you know, here she is grieving her husband of 60 years. What, you know, taking advantage. Guys, you do what you feel comfortable doing, but know this. They're in heaven. Amen? You're not doing it for them. You do it for what makes you feel comfortable. It's okay. But here we see him coming and he realized, okay, my wife's in heaven, but you know what? I need to put her in a proper burial place. But we're going to learn something about where he buries her. We're going to learn that he still believes and still has faith and trust in what God is going to do. And the sons of Heb, verse 5, answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. They call him mighty prince. You know, it's interesting that in the midst of a godless people, he still has a good testimony. And he doesn't have a good testimony because he's been like them, although we know he's blown it. But his testimony is from when he began to be a godly man. The testimony before Abimelech, knowing that he was now a prophet of God. And you know what, guys? We do not have to be, we should not be like the world, but we can have a godly testimony before the world. People ought to look at us and see something different. 
And when they looked at Abraham, they saw something different. And when he came and asked something of them, they're like, hey, what can we give you? How can we help you? Now, in the context, they're saying to him, we will loan you a portion of any one of our burial places. But that's not going to be good enough for him. He's not going to put his wife's body into a loner. He's not going to do that. He's got a whole different mentality. He's not going to do that. Now, I want to say this too. Here he has a great testimony as he comes to speak to unbelievers at the death of his wife. Can I tell you that I personally believe that one of, if not the greatest place to witness to people is at a funeral. Everybody there has somebody they loved who has just passed away. They're all being hit in the face with the fact that, yes, we are all going to die. And in the midst of that, it's time to bring the truth of the gospel. If people were ever ready to hear it, that's the time. I told you the story about the young man in San Jose that was our worship leader in the youth group. And he was just a neat and godly young man. His name was Daniel. And he got a brain tumor when he was in the youth group. And the, poor, the young man, he would lead worship. And sometimes he'd get through one song and he'd have to quit because his hands were shaking from his tumor. But I would give him rides home every day because he wasn't able to drive. And after I came to Santa Cruz, I kind of lost touch with Daniel. And he ended up getting married. But, you know, when I got a call about two or three years ago, I guess it was, that he was about to die but, and he wanted to see me. And I hadn't seen him in years. I drove over to the hospital, the Good Sam in San Jose, and I went into his hospital room. His family was all around him. And, you know, we hugged each other and we wept together and I prayed with him. And then he put his hand on my chest and I'll never forget it. And he said, Pastor Dave, here's why I called for you. I said, why? He said, because everybody I know is going to come to my funeral. And I'm not going to be there because I'm going to be in heaven. So I want you to speak for me. And I want you to bring the gospel full force, man. Don't, don't back down. Don't mess around. Bring the heat. And I mean, bring it like you've never brought it in your life. Can you do that for me? <laughs> Daniel, I'll do that for you. I absolutely will do that for you. And when I got up at his funeral, I, I absolutely said, I'm going to speak for Daniel this morning, and I'm going to tell you what he wants to tell you. He would tell you that heaven is real, that God is real, and he wants you to be there with him. But you, you know, and I shared the gospel openly, and the reality is that's a great opportunity to share Jesus Christ. And Daniel's heart was, you know, if I have to die for everybody I know to hear the gospel, then bring it on. You know, guys, that's an eternal perspective, Amen. And Lord, give us that. And here he is going. It's a time of grief, but a time that he's a testimony to unbelievers. As they're looking at him saying, hey, you're a mighty prince. We'll give you whatever you ask for. But he's not going to want the loner. He's not going to want what the world has to offer. He's going to want to do what God would have him do. So how a man of faith deals with death, he grieves, but not as those without hope. He moves forward with an eternal perspective. Heaven has become even more precious to him. Number three, he continues to trust in the promises of God. Look at verse seven. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, to the sons of Heth. I love how he continues to be a man of humility. Guys, we're going to reach people with humility, not self-righteousness. Amen? You be self-righteous, you're another pompous religious jerk, right? But if you minister to people and love people and speak to them in humility, and so he falls before them and he's showing humility. And then verse 8, he spoke to them saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. 
So he's got a piece of land picked out. He knows who owns it. And so now he says, I would like to meet with the guy who owns it because now he's going to want to try to purchase the land where he can bury his wife. Verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at full price as property for a burial place among you. Now, why is this significant? He asks for Machpelah. Let me tell you where that is. It's in the land of promise. Why is that significant? Because he, his people do not possess the land yet, but God had promised that they would one day. And because he believed the promise of God, he asked for land that his people did not yet possess, knowing that one day they would, and that's where he wanted his wife to be buried. We know that later, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Leah are all going to be buried in this exact same place. And guess what? It's in the land of promise. He has not become bitter against God because his wife died. He's not yelling out to God, why did you let this happen? How could you leave me alone? He still trusts in the promises of God. Guys, as we are grieving, we should not be running from God, but to him. Amen? Not murmuring against God, but saying, praise your name because you're faithful and I trust you and you know what's best and it hurts right now, but Lord, I'm so glad that you're with me. And I'm glad I can cry out to your name. And I'm glad that you come alongside me in the midst of this. And he begins to say to them, let me just pay full, full price. Again, he's, he's not worried about the cost of things. That's irrelevant to him. He's more worried. He's, his concern is having his wife buried in the land of promise. So how a man of faith deals with death, he grieves, but not as those without hope. He moves forward with an eternal perspective. Heaven is so much more precious to him. He continues to trust in the promises of God. He seeks to purchase that burial site in the land of promise. That's the example we see here. And finally, he continues to have a godly testimony. Now, we're going to see a Middle Eastern way of negotiating. And if you've never seen this before, just watch. Because it's very unique. People say stuff they don't mean repeatedly and it's really a game they're kind of playing and the guy's playing a game with abraham and he's just not going to really take part in it watch what happens because he's going to continue to have a godly testimony even in front of unbelievers here's what happens now ephron dwelt among the sons of heth dwelt among means he was sitting so probably sitting in the city gate and he he arranges to go and meet with him so he's in the city gate, more than likely, there with all the witnesses, and he's talking to Ephraim about this piece of land that he, God's leading him to have his wife buried in, and he comes to meet with him and talk to him. And so Ephron is there, and here's what it says. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city. So again, in the city gates, they're coming together, and he's going to begin to negotiate. Now again, he's not bitter. He's not out of control angry as we can get when we feel like God shortchanged us somehow. Instead, he comes in, he's got a humble heart, and he sees and realizes, okay, this is what God has, and I'm going to be a godly testimony in the way that I deal with this. A man of faith remains a, a, a godly example even in the midst of the greatest trials. Guys, if you squeeze a lemon, you get lemonade. You squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. Amen? 
not anger and bitterness and ah. Guys, that's a sign that our faith is not real deep. It's a sign that we're not very mature in our faith. And here he is in the midst of the, the most difficult time of his entire life. And here's at verse 11. He says, No, my Lord, hear me. This is Ephron. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. He's not giving it to him. This is the beginning of negotiation. Here's how it works. I tell you, I'm just going to give it to you. And then I look magnanimous in front of everyone like I'm this really generous guy. So I'm going to give it to you. Now, what would have really been a burn and would have really caused a problem is if Abraham had said, cool. <laughs> right on, man. Thanks. Appreciate it. And, and you know, now, I think you would have said, ah, uh, 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 come here. Right? I mean, but the point is, they're beginning this negotiation. And he's trying to pretend to be this magnanimous guy giving it away. I give it to you. Bury your dead. What is it among us? Oh, it's yours. Go ahead, have it. Verse 12. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. Third time we see him on his face. Abraham, not bitter, not angry, not acting like he needs to be pitied or martyred. Instead, he falls in his face. He remains humble in the midst of the most difficult time of his life, the loss of his beloved princess, his wife, Sarah, he remains a man of brokenness and humility, not anger, not bitterness. And then it says in verse 13, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me and I will bury my dead there. He says, oh, you can have it. He says, no, I'll give you money for it. Everybody's watching this whole thing happen, right? Verse 14 and 15. And Ephron answered and said to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. So in the midst of saying, Yeah, I just want to give it to you, he now sets the price. You notice that? Oh, it's only worth 400 shekels. What is that between you and me? Oh, just go and bury your dead. And by the way, 400 shekels, way too high of a price. Because that's where they start. It's like, we're going to start haggling. at four. Now, I don't, I don't have any idea what it was really worth, but I know this. Jeremiah went in and purchased a large lot of land. He redeemed it, and he paid 17 shekels for it. So he says, oh, what is 400 shekels between you and me? He thinks, you know, that now, you know, Abraham's going to, you know, dance back and say, oh, well, you know, hey, you know, I know it's, it's worth 400, but you know, let me give you 100. At least let me give you some, you know, he thinks they're going to start. But, you know, Abraham's not going to do that. Because Abraham's focus isn't on the physical. Abraham's not worried about haggling. He's not worried about money. He just wants to have a godly testimony. And he wants a place to bury his wife. And again, at the same time, note how easily you can take advantage of somebody, if you really want to, who's grieving. And then he says, And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. He throws out a ridiculous price, and Abraham weighs it out and hands it to him. Abraham doesn't negotiate, he doesn't bargain. You know, somebody sees your junker car in the parking lot, you want to sell it? Yeah, $100,000, and I write you a check. I mean, that's kind of what happened here. 
Are you out of your mind? And what happens is, they, you know, and they might have even thought, oh, we got over on Abraham. But again, Abraham, he's a man whose focus is on burying his wife. He's a man who doesn't care about the money. He doesn't care about the stuff. And he'd rather be taken a little bit and have a godly testimony than, than be known as somebody you know, who argued and bantered and fought and, and tried to feel pitied or, or whatever it might be. He just gave it to him. Here, you can have it. Guys, can I tell you something? Error on the side of being taken. Wait a minute. We need to stand up for ourselves. We need to, you know, let God stand up for you. He'll do a better job. Amen? Well, that guy owes me. I'm going to get over that guy. And he's better. You know, uh, you know what? Better to just you know, pray, the, pray for him. Like heaping hot coals upon his head, the Bible says. Just pray for him. You know what, Lord? If you want me to have it, you'll take care of it. Our God is faithful to do that stuff. Amen? Don't blow your testimony for something that is temporary. Do you think, do you think that Ephron is in hell if that's where he is going, you dude, I got over on him on that piece of land. That was sweet. And that's not what happens. And you're not in heaven saying, I'm really glad I got over on that guy and blew my testimony. I'd rather just, you know what, let him have it. Lord said, if you want your coat, give me your undercoat. Just take it. I don't care. You know why? It's better to err on that side, that God might be glorified, that we don't blow our testimony. So he came prepared. He gave it to him. This gift cost him a lot of money. He wants to give him the land. 400 shekels later, he gets it, right? It's a very expensive gift. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron, which was Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field of the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all went in at the gate of his city. Now Mamre is where he was now living, and so the, and he could look from you know, Kirjath Arba, from the area of Mamre, Hebron, and it, it was close enough where he could look out and see the place where they were buried. So it was nearby to him, but it was in the land of promise, and he was being obedient to the Lord. You know what I find interesting here, though? I don't believe anything happens by chance in the Word of God. And the first time we see a burial place, first time we see mourning, the first time we see weeping, we see a husband paying an exorbitant amount of money to find a place of rest for his wife. Guys, our Savior played an exorbitant price to find a place of rest for us, his bride. Amen? Nothing happens by chance in the Bible. Word of God is always perfect. He's got his mind on heaven. He buys this place, and now there's a place for his wife to be buried. Verse 19 and 20. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, that is Hebron. See, that's the place where he lived. So it was nearby, in the land of Canaan. Again, Canaan is the land of promise. So once the price was paid, Sarah's, Sarah's body was placed in Hebron, in fellowship. It assured that coming generations would be buried in the land of promise, and it's a picture of what Jesus did for us through the price he paid on our behalf that we too can enter that place of eternal rest. So here's this place of everlasting fellowship that is being pictured here. And then verse 20, So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So after many years of wandering, Abraham finally owns a small piece of real estate in the land that God had promised him. And though it just became uh, his, it and the rest of the promised land were already, were already given to him by the Lord. Guys, what's interesting to me, 
he now has a small piece of the land of promise. And Pastor Dave, opinion, okay? We have a small piece of heaven right now in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Amen? We're going to be in heaven one day and see all of it. But right now, God's given us a foretaste of that. You know, here's Abraham, the father of faith, paying an exorbitant price so that his wife might have a place of rest. He has a small piece of that land of promise that which is to come. And you and I, our heavenly father, sent his son who paid an exorbitant price that you and I might enter into his rest. But even right now, we have a small piece of that great and awesome promise and the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. But one day, we're going to get the rest of our inheritance. Amen? So in closing... How a man of faith deals with death. He grieves, but not as those without hope. Number two, he moves forward with an eternal perspective. Heaven becomes more precious to him. He doesn't allow his grieving to render him paralyzed. He doesn't you know, stop serving God. doesn't let the enemy use that to wipe him out. Instead, he has to press in more to the Lord, and he continues to stand up and move forward in his relationship with God. Number three, he continues to trust in the promises of God. He doesn't cry out to God. He doesn't murmur against God. He doesn't doubt God. He doesn't question God. He grieves. He struggles. It's difficult, but he trusts God, if not the same more so than he did before, because he desperately needs to hold on to him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Amen? In those difficult times, the Lord is with us. And lastly, he continues to have a godly testimony. Because he's far more concerned with representing the Lord than getting over on the world. Amen? If you're here and you're grieving, you're not alone. The Lord loves you. He's faithful. And you know what? We're your family. And we want to comfort you. Amen? And as we comfort you, there's going to be a time where we're going to need you to comfort us. Because all of us are going to face this at some point in our lives. Amen? And we need to live every day in expectation of a soon return. But if not, it's okay because our God is faithful. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the promise of heaven. And Lord, I do lift up those who are grieving even now. Loss of family, loss of friends, loss of co-workers. Hearts breaking, Father. Lord, I pray and ask in Jesus' name that you would comfort them that you would give them the peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, and I pray that, that we would be your arms to give them a hug, your lips to give them a word of encouragement. I pray that we would function as a body, Lord, coming alongside one another, ministering to one another. And Father, we know that before us, if you tarry, if you don't come back beforehand, we're all going to face it. Lord, I pray you'd prepare us even now. Give us an eternal perspective, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on heaven so much more precious to us today than it's ever been and only gets more precious every day. We can't wait to see you face to face. Lord, if it be your will, we would love to have you come right now. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But Lord, if you tarry, I pray that we'd be busy about your work. And when you come back, you would find us, Lord, living for you, sharing the hope that lies within us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.